0: Welcome to the Australian Chiropractors Association podcast. The ACA is the peak body representing chiropractors in Australia. Hosted by Dr Anthony Coxon, these podcasts explore the science, art, philosophy and politics of chiropractic, as well as reviewing the latest research and discussing how chiropractors can strive for excellence in practice. Welcome to the Australian Chiropractors Association podcast. I'm your podcast host, Anthony Coxon. The most common reason new patients see chiropractors is for help with low back pain. In fact, around 35% of the time, this is the primary reason. Fortunately, we are well equipped to manage most low back pain cases that walk through our door. But as an expert clinician, we need to be aware of all the possible scenarios. So as the old saying goes, when you hear hooves, you might first think of horses but you need to think of the zebras too. Now, one commonly overlooked cause of lumbosacral and buttock pain is main syndrome and pineal nerve entrapment. If you're a bit vague on your understanding of these presentations, then not to worry. This podcast will help bring you up to speed in understanding and managing this important condition. I'm joined today by chiropractor Tim Bertelsmann. Now this is the second time we've had Tim on the ACA podcast in episode 78 Tim took us through a great discussion on rotator cuff tendinopathy and I'd certainly recommend you check that one out if you missed it the last time Now a little bit about Tim uh Tim graduated uh from Logan College of Chiropractic with honors and has been a practicing in Belleville Illinois since 1992 Uh, He is a board-certified chiropractic sports physician and a a diplomat of the Academy of Chiropractic Orthopedists. Dr. Bertelsmann has lectured nationally on various clinical and business topics and has been published extensively. He is a postgraduate instructor for the University of Bridgeport Orthopedic Diplomatic Program. And importantly, uh, Tim is co-founder of an online clinical and business resource called ChiroUp.com and we'll be chatting a little bit more about that at the end of the podcast. Hi, Tim. Welcome to the ACA podcast.
1: Oh, Thanks for having me again, Dr. Coxon.
0: It's great to have you back. Um, maybe let's start at the beginning and remind our listeners, what are the cluneal nerves and, and where do they innovate?
1: Sure. cluneal nerves something that we uh, don't often think about. They start at the thoracolumbar junction. They're really the posterior rami of the T12 through LT, L3 vertical. Uh, segments, and they uh, transmit their fibers inferiorly, and then they come out over the top of the iliac crest as the superior clunial nerves. So those superior clunial nerves just come through these osteofibrous tunnels on top of the iliac crest and then span out over the top portion of that crest to get the, uh, the, the superior aspect of it.
0: And so there's a there's a middle and an inferior branch as well are they also involved uh with you know potential pathologies and entrapment
1: yeah absolutely so it's a little bit confusing the, the nomenclature for the clunial nerves that there are really three sets of clunial nerves there's the superior clunial nerves what we just talked about they come off of the Uh, T12 through L3 vertebral levels. And then more at the midline, like right over the top of the sacrum, we have the the medial clunial nerves. And then down at the base of the buttock, near the gluteal crease, we would have the inferior clunial nerves. And each of those are a set of about three nerves. Now the medial and the inferior actually come from the sacral rami. The ones that we're most concerned about today because it deals with the thoracolumbar spine would be the superior set. And that superior set of three is divided into uh, medial, intermediate, and lateral. So it's a little bit confusing, but if you think of three sets of nerves, each of which have three, today we'll be talking about that upper set, the superior clunial nerves that that come over the top of the iliac crest.
0: Very good. And yes, a little bit confusing, but you've explained that very well. So when we're talking about the superior corneal nerve, those bunch of three nerves, where, where's, uh, they supply more that top half of the gluteal area, the, the, um, superficial, uh, part of that, of that area.
1: Right. If you'd probably put the crease between your finger and your palm on your iliac crest, um, right in the, the, the aspect between your sacrum and the lateral aspect between your, um, your acetabulum, those would pretty much be the distribution of the nerve. And it does drop down a little bit lower. It'll get toward the middle portion of the buttock but it, it would be the superior, the middle, and the lateral aspect of the buttock that it would would uh, represent. Really, this side of symptoms that so many of our patients come in with on a routine basis, that radicular discomfort, or referred discomfort, rather, into the, uh, into the buttock. That's our classic presentation for a superior cluneal nerve entrapment.
0: And as you alluded to, and we'll be getting into how to differentiate a a lumbo sacral a sij or a, a cranial nerve problem down the track but um to start with I want to talk about or go back to um, the introduction talk about main syndrome can you explain what that is and, and how that's different from a from a cranial nerve entrapment
1: uh, that's a great question the two are are often um, found together they're often confused with each other and the way that I'd think about it myself is that uh, main syndrome is entrapment or irritation of the nerve as it, as it comes out of the, off the posterior ramus. So more at the vertebral foramen. And then as that courses inferiorly and in the nerve turns into the clunial nerve, clunial neuropathy is entrapment of the nerve once it exits that osteofibrous tunnel over the iliac crest. Remember that thoracolumbar fascia comes down and inserts itself onto the iliac crest. Well, the nerve has to pierce that fascia. And sometimes the fascia can develop thickenings. It can develop areas of of stenotic uh, narrowing, and then the nerve gets compressed. So main syndrome is irritation up top at the thoracolumbar junction, often due to facet problems or joint dysfunctions or any type of uh, hyper or hypomobility. And clunial neuropathy is more of a peripheral nerve entrapment down low. We could think of it as a, um, a cervical uh, disc problem versus a carpal tunnel, that the cervical disc problem causes entrapment up high at the spine and carpal tunnel affects some of those same nerve fibers down low at the, at the wrist. And that would be kind of the relationship between uh, main syndrome including neuropathy.
0: Now you've given a, a good um, analogy there with uh, carpal tunnel syndrome. Can you get both and and work a bit like a double crush phenomenon in the low back with cluneal nerve entrapment, like you might with a with a cervical and carpal tunnel issue?
1: right? That uh, unfortunately, as as we're all painfully aware, patients often come in with combined diagnoses. And a lot of times that double crush syndrome is the culprit that there's some irritation happening at the intervertebral foramen that hypersensitizes the nerve. And then there's some additional irritation happening more peripherally where that nerve uh, exits at orifice and pierces the thoracolumbar fascia. So the two together are enough to create symptoms, and then that patient has that pain radiating into the upper buttock, like your fingers hanging over your iliac crest.
0: Is there a patient profile, a typical patient that is more likely to experience cluneal uh, 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 nerve entrapment or main syndrome as opposed to you know a, a standard low back case?
1: You know, I think that um, we often overlook this. I know that I have done that for a long part of my career um, and thought that it was a lumbar problem or a stubborn sacroiliac joint problem. And some studies tell us that up to 40% of our lower back patients have concurrent clunial neuropathy or a main syndrome. So the profile would be anyone with lower back pain that has the characteristic lumbosacral discomfort and iliac crest discomfort, that's who we'd be looking for on on a daily basis it does seem to um, affect a, a little bit more of the middle to older age population. So people who are in their 50s and 60s tend to be um, more likely because there's more likely to be some degenerative change at that thor- thoracolumbar junction, making the nerve hyperexcitable to start with, more likely to have had chronic back pain for years. And that chronic back pain we know causes some tensioning of that thoracolumbar fascia. So the the culprits tend to build up and then trigger it once we get a couple years later. But certainly uh, even our younger patients, because not only hypomobility is an issue, but hypermobility is an issue. So our patients who have lumbar or spinal instability, which are often the younger crowd, the the kids who can hyperextend their elbows and bend their fingers back to touch their fingernails on their forearms, that younger population is also susceptible to it. And it does seem to be slightly more common in females, but it's something that uh, presents more frequently than I think we often often recognize.
0: Now, I want to get to the tricky part for, for us and, and something I think was worth diving into today. This is actually, what do we do? What tests do we need to do to, in order to differentiate a cloneal problem from a, a, a lumbar sacral SIJ or, or any other kind of problem?
1: Oh, that's a, that's another great question. That's a challenge that um, so few providers are able to differentiate that. Fortunately, we as chiropractors have a unique ability to look at those mechanical sources. And I think like any problem, we'll look first at the patient's history. So when that patient comes in with a complaint that looks like a classic sacroiliac joint dysfunction or a classic lumbar dysfunction, And they don't improve with our treatment over the first couple of visits as typically those conditions would that would be the first clue so when they have that pain in the lumbosacral region and iliac crest most of the time it's unilateral but sometimes can be bilateral the patient might have discomfort with sustained postures and that can be either sitting or standing so when that patient is sitting and slouching forward they're stretching that whole nerve and if there's some entrapment at that orifice it's not going to like that stretch nerves don't like compression and they don't like stretch, whether it be the median nerve or the cluneal nerves. So slouching forward is a culprit sometimes, other times walking is a culprit because when somebody's in sustained postures of, of standing or extension, it really diminishes the size of the invertebral foramen and it also tensions that peripheral nerve at the same time. So the patient with that sort of a history is, is our first culprit. Somebody who looks like they have mechanical low back pain, they don't like sustained postures, And maybe they didn't improve with our first treatment or two. But then like any neuropathy uh, and really any orthopedic evaluation that, that we have all of these fancy names for orthopedic assessments. And when it comes down to it, the vast majority of them can be broken down into one of three things. You either push it, you pull it, or you make it work. And if you think of every orthopedic test you have, it does one of those three things or at least most every orthopedic test. And nerves are no exception. In particular, nerves don't like to be pushed or pulled. If you think of the carpal tunnel, they don't like to be pushed on with phalanx test and they don't like to be pulled with reverse phalanx test. So stretch or compression. So with those conditions, we're gonna try to stretch or compress it. That uh, down at the, at the clunial nerves, the first thing is we're, we're going to poke over the emergence of that nerve. And the nerve emerges from the midline, approximately four centimeters uh, for the medial branch and approximately eight centimeters for the middle branch or the intermediate branch of that superior cluneal nerve. So if you come right off the sacral tubercle and put four finger breaths, poke on that spot and roll over the top of it and say, is there tenderness in that area? Am I reproducing your discomfort here? And then spread over another three or four finger breaths and say, am I producing discomfort here? And when that patient has hypersensitivity to those areas, that would be the classic sign of a clunial neuropathy. Sometimes we can even feel a little bit of a thickening of that tissue from the chronic irritation and adhesion. You can tap it with a reflex hammer, but I find my fingers work just as well. But sometimes you can get a Tinel sign or a shock-like sensation. And then we'll certainly want to look at the origin of that nerve. So one of the challenges with cluneal neuropathy is that we oftentimes will find tenderness at the site of the problem, like a lumbosacral or sacrileic problem, whereas cluneal neuropathy, there's there's not tenderness um, at the site of the symptoms. The tenderness is oftentimes up higher. The problem is up higher. It's removed. So assessing the thoracolumbar junction for both hypermobility and hypomobility is key. That the hypomobility, we're all familiar with that through our motion palpation and range of motion testing, saying how does that junction move? Does that transition do what it's supposed to? And it's not a hype, a super mobile joint to start with, but there should be good mobility. And when the patient has some discomfort to motion palpation of the thoracolumbar lumbar junction, Kemp's test is positive, Yeoman's test, those sort of things that compress the facets and irritate it we should be a little bit more suspicious that maybe there is some, some main syndrome or some uh, clunial neuropathy. And then the last thing that we can do is if that nerve's hypersensitive, not only does it not like to be be stretched or pushed, it doesn't like to be pinched either. So if we uh, palpate down over the top of the iliac crest and pinch where those nerves would be, we'll find that there's some hypersensitivity. It's much like the arm squeeze test when we did the uh, rotator cuff episode a a couple of times ago. We talked about differentiating a rotator cuff problem from a cervical problem. And patients who have shoulder pain could have, have either. But if we can squeeze their arm and it causes an increase in discomfort, it's fairly sensitive and specific that there's some degree of a cervical nerve root that's contributing to that problem. And the same is true of clunial neuropathy. If we can start pinching the fascia and the muscles over the top of the spine, they shouldn't be particularly sensitive from a pinch. If you poke on them, they might, but if you pinch them, they really shouldn't. And if they are, it tells us there's some degree of nerve hypersensitivity there. And we know what nerve that is. That's the clunial nerves that are coming through there. So looking for hypermobility and hypomobility, poking the nerve, pinching the nerve, stretching the nerve. And then probably one of the other overlooked things to deal with this is that recognizing how essential uh, breathing is to good thoracolumbar function and really stability of the whole system. So when our patient has signs of dysfunctional breathing, that they have paradoxical breathing, they're breathing with their upper chest and our stressed out patient who's breathing with their scalenes and every other muscle, they should use those muscles if they're running from a bear. But if they're not running from a bear, they probably shouldn't be using them. They should be using their diaphragm. And when their diaphragms not firing, their belly is not expanding, their lower rib cage is not flaring, it tells us they're probably not breathing properly. And that's going to perpetuate that, that issue, whether it be hypermobility or hypomobility indefinitely. So one of the long-term keys to resolving this is identifying but then correcting paradoxical breathing, teaching that patient how to breathe from their belly
0: great advice. Um, I want to just clarify something when you were talking about um, the pinching, is that the same as the skin rolling? So where you sort of like gather the skin and pull it away as opposed to, to pressing into where where you're obviously going to be impacting on deeper tissues as well?
1: Yes. Well, that's a, that's a great clarification. So the pinching would be to, to just take a loose fold of skin and then rolling it between the fingers. So I think your term, skin rolling, would be much more appropriate than what I was speaking of pinching. But skin rolling would be an excellent test for this, this condition.
0: Fantastic. All right, so we've identified that this patient has a cloneal nerve or a mains problem. Um, what are we, Apart from the uh, advice on diaphragm breathing, which clearly is very important, what else are we going to do?
1: I have no idea. Um, <laughs> The, uh... the podcast will wrap it up right there. Glad <laughs> that could be so useful for you. Um, that, um, you know, really it, it uh, depends a little bit on, or a lot, I should say, on whether it's hypermobility or hypomobility, yeah. that we we want to address that the same way a lumbar spine, that if we find a patient who has lumbar joint dysfunction, it's from hypomobility, we put motion into it and things turn out pretty well pretty quickly it's those patients who have hypermobility in the area or spinal instability that that prove more challenging because there's nothing that you or I can do instantly to make that happen, but teaching that patient the right stability exercises. And I rarely find that it's a problem to make a spine more stable. So for a lot of these patients, I will teach them stability exercises right off the bat, things like a bird dog and a side bridge and a dead bug, those types of things to gain some stability and if I sense that there is some hypomobility, joint restriction, the thoracolumbar junction, then certainly manipulating that. Even, even um, Dr. Main, who is not a chiropractor, uh, identified a painful minor intervertebral dysfunction was his term. So we can add that to our list of 700 other things that we term what we treat all day long. And he found that uh, high velocity manipulation was beneficial. And since that point in time, there have been numerous studies that have said, yes, manipulating the thoracolumbar junction is really helpful for mate syndrome. That's something that we usually don't forget as chiropractors to manipulate joints, but sometimes we're not manipulating the right location in these patients. So again, I find when I have a patient who has not responded to a, a session or two or three of manipulation... I need to make sure that I'm looking at that thoracolumbar junction and putting motion into that area as well. And and whatever your favorite technique is for that, sometimes sending the patient home with a foam roller to help maintain that mobility afterwards. Now, if they have a lot of irritation of those nerves, they probably don't want to roll that over the iliac crest because nerves don't like that sort of pressure. But the thoracolumbar junction, as long as we can keep it up higher, usually it's not a problem because the nerves are pretty deep there. They're not going to be affected by compression at that point in time. The other thing that we'll uh, do is to consider some modalities that uh, calming the nerve down that's irritated may be helpful. Some E-STEM, but like what we're seeing with research for carpal tunnel, that probably has some limited values. Really, the long-term value is restoring the biomechanical function to the area and getting the neurodynamics back in check. So if there are some adhesions or irritations or altered neurodynamics of those clunial nerves, they need to be stretched out. Anytime that a nerve has irritation, even if it's up at the foramen, that entire nerve gets a little bit swollen. And a little bit swollen nerve means that there's higher hydrostatic pressure and the tissues around it, so we're going to start seeing some weeping of fluid, and as that fluid weeps, it'll create spot welds, and unfortunately, those spot welds are what interfere with normal neurodynamics, and that if we think of a nerve as a bungee cord that's uh, 20 feet long, and that could be any nerve, it could be the, the what we're talking about here, the cluneal nerve, or it could be coming from your cervical spine down into your hand as the median nerve, If that nerve is 20 feet long bungee cord and you can pull on it and you stretch it all equally, each portion of it has a very small amount of stretch. And there's no ischemia that's created but if someone would step on that bungee cord two feet from where you're pulling now all of that tension is happening in that two foot section which if you just grasp the skin on top of your hand and pull it up you'll see it develops ischemia when it gets more stretched than what it should it turns white and the blood goes away well that the same thing happens to the nerve if you pull on it and that ischemia is not appreciated so uh, getting those neurodynamics, getting rid of those spot welds is essential. And there's a really great technique of clunial nerve mobilization that there's been a lot of work by some great clinicians on neurodynamics. And we're seeing in the literature that doing, uh, performing neurodynamic techniques is incredible as far as helping outcomes for our radicular patients for whether it be carpal tunnel syndrome, cervical radiculopathy, or patients who have even lower back pain and sciatica, but it's it's certainly useful for our patients with clunial neuropathy. And the way that I perform that clunial nerve release, and I can give you access to a video as well afterwards, is to have the patient lie on their side with the affected side up. And you're going to stand in front of that patient and then take the patient's top leg, so the affected leg, and bring it over the front of the table. So now their leg is coming out towards you. And in order to stay in front of them, what you're going to do is straddle their leg and kind of grasp it between your knees or lower thighs. Put your other hand up on their shoulder so that they're nice and stable. So now we're facing the patient where uh, they're lying on the, on the table, they're facing you, their leg is between your legs, your hand is on their shoulder, and your other hand is up on their hip. So you've got them in a nice stable position. And now what you're going to do is as you torque their pelvis forward a little bit and push their shoulder back just a little, run your hand along the course of those nerves. So drag your hand from the origin of that nerve at the thoracolumbar junction and drag it down toward the iliac crest as you're coming across that whole area. So stripping out the distribution of the clunial nerve Over the top, we want to be judicious as we go over the top of that osteofibrous orifice where the nerve comes out to not smash it too much, as no nerve would appreciate that. Stripping the suboccipital muscles is good, but smashing the greater occipital nerve into the skull is not appreciated. And the same thing is true of the cluneal nerves. They don't appreciate being smashed into the iliac crest. So we want to lighten up our pressure a little bit through there, but stripping out that fascia, gaining some mobility tends to really have a a good uh, impact on these patients and improves their outcomes. Getting rid of that that tightness in the thoracolumbar fascia and then getting motion into the thoracolumbar junction so that there's not as much irritation. A lot of times these patients will have other dysfunction. Sometimes they're chronic back pain patients. They'll have tightness in their psoas. Uh, Stretching out the psoas is helpful. And then certainly like any of our back pain patients, they may have some tightness in their in their lumbar erectors. So getting that to loosen up as well. Um, that would be what I would start with from a manual therapy, but then send them home with some homework. In addition to the foam roller, we'll send them home with stretches for their psoas We'll send them home with some mobility, and then we'll we'll wanna get some stability in the area. So teaching them uh, plank positions initially, something that does not put any stress on that nerve, and then progressing them into variations of the plank and finally some bird dog and side bridge type of movements once we get some restoration of the functional neurodynamics in the area. And if that patient does tell you that I breathe improperly because they're moving their chest, and with each breath, as opposed to moving their belly, which most of our patients do, at least here in the States they do. Everybody's busy and stressed out and has learned to hold their belly in and uh, a thousand reasons that we're sitting at workstations for prolonged periods of time. All of those things tend to lead to dysfunctional breathing patterns, which then perpetuate thoracolumbar junctional syndromes like main syndrome. So teaching that patient to put a hand on their chest and a hand on their belly, when they're lying on their back, uh, just relaxing at night and making sure that when they take a breath, it's only the hand on their belly that's moving, the hand on their chest or the sternum stays still. So that's something that can be a challenge for patients, but getting them to do a little bit of breathing rehab uh, can go a long way.
0: Uh, Tim, once again, I think that's all absolutely outstanding advice. And I think it's really important when we're giving any kind of advice to, to patients that there's a clear clinical reason for it. But uh, it seems uh, to me that when you're talking about diaphragm breathing, when you're talking about bird dog, when you're talking about dead bug or, or a side bridge, there's not many reasons not to do those things for uh, a whole lot of low back uh, patients. I'm sure, of course, there there are exceptions. But I, I do find myself going back to a lot of those things you've just mentioned so often in so many cases, not just with a superior uh or a main syndrome presentation, but in so many cases. Um, uh, it, times when there's some sort of you know biomechanical dysfunction in some way subluxation whatever you want to call it in in the low back it's 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 a great rehab
1: what an excellent point that our, our patients rarely have too stable of a lumbar spine yeah. uh, or too uh, too good of an uh, a cervical posture that their head is over their shoulders a little bit too well um, so so doing those things that have little little likelihood of going over the top are helpful they've they've taught themselves lots of ways to have Dysfunctional postures in the other direction, and life will balance that out. Even if we do give them a little more stability than what they need. Right.
0: Now, I, I discovered Cairo Up by looking at your blogs, and I was really interested in the Superior corneal Main Syndrome blog, which is why we're having this discussion on our podcast today. Hope you could tell the uh, 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 listeners out there what it is Cairo Up does. And, and one of the things I think is really terrific is the patient education that you can send them. So if you have a patient who presents with these sorts of problems. Uh, You've got resources uh, that that chiropractors can share with their patients.
1: Well, thank you for uh, for that opportunity. We um, started ChiroUp about six years ago, uh, purely from a standpoint of trying to develop better clinical outcomes. And obviously, one of those tools is to be able to educate the patient. So ChiroUp collects current best practices. Uh, We've reviewed now 8,000 journals and we have a team of uh, specialists in all chiropractic disciplines who help us vet the information to say if there's a better way to manage main syndrome, we can can learn that. If there's new research that comes out that's saying that this nerve release or this stretcher manipulation is better, then we put it into a protocol so chiropractors can access that 24-7 to see what is the current standard of care, what is the current best practice protocol for now 111 different conditions. And main syndrome is one of those. But I think what's most useful to me in practice is to be able to deliver that to a patient. So if a patient comes in with main syndrome, I can go into Cairo up and and put in the patient's name, their email address, and their diagnosis, and then it sends them a HIPAA compl- a, a compliant uh, report that says, "Here's what's wrong." Here's what you can do to help yourself. Here's what I'm going to do to help you through manipulation and nerve flossing with explanations of those things. And here's the exercises that you can can do to help speed your recovery. And the patient then gets access to a portal that's branded to my clinic or your clinic, whoever has the, the system. Um, and the patient is able to play videos of those exercises so that it helps me because I can educate the patient. They tend to be more compliant. Uh, they tend to have better uh, recoveries. And it really limits the questions that we often know if our patients tried their exercises because they'll ask you about them the next day. And if they didn't ask you about them, especially if you gave a a tensor fascia a lot of stretch and they don't ask about it you know they didn't try it so those patients now have a resource to answer those questions but most importantly I can see my outcomes per diagnosis 30 days after that patient sends the report or receives the report they receive a survey saying how much better are you how many times were you seen? what's your level of satisfaction and how likely are you to refer to this provider in the future so now we can see, not Cairo, not but you as a provider can see what our outcomes are per case and per diagnosis to learn where we can improve. And then what we do is reach out to the top providers in the world. Now we have 2,500 providers, many of whom are in Australia um, as, a, as an outstanding group of providers who are largely evidence-based. And we can learn from those providers throughout the world as to what's the better way to treat that. So together, we're working to make our profession that undeniable best choice, um, regardless of who's paying the bill to get our patients better. And I, uh, pump up what we do as chiropractors to give us a seat at the, at the table. So Cairo helps me to, to practice you know, with, with confidence, knowing that I'm using best practices and it helps my patients to be empowered to, um, to be able to see that information and implement that information. And it's, it's easy to use. In fact, if anybody's interested, if you visit CairoUp.com, there's a button that says try it now or free trial, you can check it out. Uh, we're happy to, to jump on a live web uh, cam or to send you the information to show you how to use it. But I think that you'll find it's pretty simple. And um, we would love to have anybody on board
0: fantastic tim and certainly um for people who want to look at the videos of the exercises um and the other procedures that we've talked about you can just go to the blog section on chiro uh, up.com and you can see the videos there which uh which put, give uh, i think a, a greater picture and understanding of uh, what we've talked about this morning um tim thank you so much for your time uh from the other side of the world i really appreciate uh, all you do for the profession and uh today's been another great podcast so thank you so much
1: Thank you for having me on again.
0: Well, that's it for me. Thanks for listening. I hope this podcast has been helpful in your quest for excellence. I look forward to chatting with you again on our next ACA podcast.